Hello, and welcome to Scene to Song, a musical theater podcast for people who love to discuss, critique, and celebrate musicals as a literary art form. I'm your host, Shoshana Greenberg, and each week I'll bring on a guest to talk about a musical, musical theater writer, or a topic or trend in musical theater. My guest today is Michael R. Jackson. Michael is a composer, lyricist, and book writer whose musicals include Only Children, Teeth, based on the 2007 indie film, and A Strange Loop, which can be seen in the spring of 2019 at New York City's Playwrights Horizons Theatre. He is a winner of the Jonathan Larson Award and received his BFA in playwriting from NYU's Tisch School of the Arts Dramatic Writing Program and his MFA from NYU's Graduate Musical Theatre Writing Program. We're going to talk today about equity, diversity, and inclusion in musical theater. Hey, Michael. Thanks for being on the podcast. Thanks for having me, Shoshana. What was your first experience with a musical? My earliest memory that I, that I can recall is there was this group, I'm from Detroit, Michigan, and there's this group that a children's theater group that was then called the Peanut Butter Players. And, <laughs> and they would do like musicals. Like I think I did like You're a Good Man, Charlie Brown and mm-hmm. like things like that. And I seem to remember like my friend, my best friend's mom at the time took us to go see one of those productions. And then a couple of years later, they changed their name to the paperback to paperback productions, mm-hmm. and I auditioned to be in it, and I got into that. And I think the first musical I did with them was Snoopy, mm-hmm. and I played, of course, Franklin, who had four lines, <laughs> two of which got cut. Oh. Um, so that was like probably like my earliest like really being a musical because I can still like remember I love those songs so much from Snoopy and um, I like remember most of them what older or classic show did you recently see for the first time and what was your experience with it Um, so the only one that I've seen is Hello Dolly oh yeah (laughs) I went to the invited dress for that and I had never I had never seen it I had only knew when the parade passes by because mm-hmm. it's a song that's like yeah, yeah. so in the culture. Um, and I confess that it mystified me. Mm-hmm. Like, it was a musical that I completely did not understand yeah. and do not understand. I, on some level, get why it's like enjoyable to watch, but as like a story, I, and I'm, I think it's just because I'm a very story oriented yeah, yeah. person, um, I just. And it's so old-fashioned. Mm-hmm. I just found myself probably overthinking it. Right, um, right. But I, I was... So my response was like, I, I don't get it. Like, I didn't get it. Is there uh, a musical, one you saw recently, or an older one, that taught you something valuable about the craft of writing? I broke my No Revival rule, which we'll talk about later. Mm-hmm. Um, and I went and saw the Astoria Performing Arts production of Follies. Oh, yes. Which, Follies is my favorite Sondheim musical. What I actually found very moving about this particular production was Mm -hmm. that most of the time when Follies is done, at least in New York, and is that 
it's always like this very the stunt casting and the star yeah, casting is like such really a big thing and i too. found that the fact that like these were all none of them except for one friend who i knew was in it right. well i knew two people were in it but like yeah. one was a closer friend than the other and that was that not knowing who the people were mm-hmm. like i was very moved in yeah. a way that like i hadn't been when i saw the last revival just like the scene those people yeah. and then like the woman whoever the older actress was who came out to sing one more kiss which mm-hmm. is like my favorite song on the show like yeah. it just like touched me on like a deep level and it was just like a community theater production right. of follies but like there was something about the way that the, the fact it was a community theater piece to me actually felt appropriate for what the piece itself mm-hmm. was yeah. and how it's exploring um its topics and its themes and I don't and so I found so there was something I feel like I learned about the power of less less is more I don't, mm-hmm. and it sounds like I'm not saying that like because those people aren't quote unquote stars they're less but like right. there's something about star like star power sometimes is not right. what you actually want or, ne- or, any, or need yeah. like you actually just want to go like find ordinary regular or like just really good actors. really good actors yeah. who can just do it and who like are right for the parts right yeah i had that question going into that too and and coming out of it still too like does follies need the star casting is that like inherently a part of that musical i and so and i've long had a theory about follies in particular which is that i think that it's it's an interesting challenge because part of the power of what the original Broadway version of that was, was that the people who were the stars who were cast in it were closer to the styles of music and time periods that were being sort of dealt with. And that the audiences that were watching it could actually sort of in almost in real time see this whole spectrum of these performers and these styles of music that were going out of style and the world was changing in this particular point in the 1970s and i just think the further you get away from that and the audience the collective Mm. audience memory isn't there it doesn't matter it doesn't it kind of doesn't matter who gets cast in it so then but so then like if you're gonna do this big star casting you want to really make sure that the people are like literally the right Mm. parts because then you it's sort of like who cares like i that was because that was like my response to the last revival i was like i love bernard peters but who cares right what's a musical people might be surprised to find out you love and why would they be surprised i think people might be surprised although i tell people all the time Mm -hmm. they might be surprised to find that i absolutely love showboat Oh, nice. I, it's in my top five. I mean, it, part, of, part of the reason why I love it is because it was, like, one of the first big Broadway musicals that I saw. Yeah. I saw the the, the 1994 revival of it, or the mm-hmm. touring. I saw the, the tour. The touring yeah. version of it. First, I think the music is, like, some of the most beautiful music ever written. Mm-hmm. But I also think that it was tr- it was in its own way trying to deal with... Um, racial injustice Mm -hmm. and even at a young age i recognized that and i thought that that was important yeah and that i thought it was really cool that like a that a musical 
could try to seriously address in its like that issue and not just be like a silly musical. Right. Now, in hindsight, there were a lot of things about Showboat that like don't hold up. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know that more now than I did as a teenager when I saw it, or middle schooler actually, when I saw it. And I even recognized that there were some things that were like weird about it in terms of how some of the black characters were portrayed. Mm-hmm. But but I also sense that particularly in that production and how Prince was trying to do something that was more sophisticated. Yeah. And I and that registered with me as a kid and like I so I've always had like a soft spot yeah, yeah. for it as a result. If you could require the president or our government leaders <laughs> to see one musical, not necessarily playing right now, right. what would it be? Um, I would require them all to see Ain't Supposed to Die a Natural Death mm. by Melvin Van Peebles. Yeah, you're the second person to bring up Melvin Van Peebles. <laughs> I mean, Sukari was the other one. Yeah, all right. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, because I think that, like, our leaders need a dose of reality. Mm-hmm. Like, a, a big, cold, yeah. ice water challenge of reality. Yeah. And Ain't Supposed to Die, Ain't Supposed to Die a Natural Death is an extremely gritty in real um, depiction of black life, mm-hmm. albeit in the 70s. Yeah. Um, it pulls absolutely no punches. Um, it does not um, spare any white feelings. Mm-hmm. It's like totally just punches you right in the face with right. what it is and tells the truth as as Melvin and Peebles wanted to show it. and. And that's something that I think that our leaders, they need to be exposed to more things like that that are uncompromising. Yeah. Um, and don't put up with their BS. Yeah, yeah. We're going to talk about um, equity and diversity and inclusion in musical theater. So you are often asked to speak about this topic in musical theater. How did you come to start talking about this? And what are your thoughts on how this topic is usually addressed? Um, I came to start talking about this topic in musical theater because there was a actor, writer, guy named Brett Ryback, who at the time, this was like two or three years ago, I think Mm -hmm. it was three years ago, wrote this on his website, a blog about Dear Evan Hansen, which was at that time, was running at, I think, Arena Stage. Okay. I think. And at that time, it was an all-white cast. Mm -hmm. And he was sort of taking them to task for that and and then more generally talking about quote unquote diversity in musical theater mm-hmm. and he and I had just met like a couple of months before at Goodspeed um, at this uh, Johnny Mercer Colony residency and so he name checked me in this article about like not only did he think that white writers didn't have the responsibility to have more diverse casts as he put it, he also felt like we need to hear more from writers of color. And so I was one of the writers that he mentioned. Mm-hmm. And he linked to my website. Yeah. And then when he did that, someone texted me. was like, oh, you got called name checked in this blog. And yeah. I read it and I was like, oh, but he linked to my website, which I had not updated in like two years. Yeah. So I was like, oh, no, he's going to drive this traffic to my website <laughs> and I need to put something on it. Right. So I was like, well, why don't I respond to his post right which wasn't about me but like the topic yeah and i was like well let me just actually sit down and put i had talked i had 
thoughts about the topic, but right. I'd never had a reason to write about it. So I wrote this blog on my website about diversity in musical theater, and I shared it to social media, and it was like the first and like only thing I've ever posted that quote-unquote went viral. What I think about it has evolved yeah. since, in some ways... This was back in... I think it was 2015. I kind of remember. Yeah, I think it was. Yeah. Yeah. Um, like, my feeling about diversity, equity, and inclusion now are that I feel that the topic has shifted into being something that is usually about um, white people's feelings mm-hmm. and, like, just wanting to make sure that, like, the optics look good and less about actually dismantling a system that sort of erases the experiences of people of color and narratives Mm -hmm. is what I think it usually is. There are are some people who are better at sort of talking or better at sort of responding to the thing that we call diversity, equity, inclusion than others. But on the whole, I find that it I find it to be a fairly shallow conversation, mm-hmm. but one that we're always wading into, and it's also one that almost 99% of the time ends up being a discussion about casting. Yeah. Um, and so that's, like, my frustration with the topic because I, I'm just kind of, like, casting, for me, is, like, such... Is not an insignificant part of the conversation, but it is not... Uh, an adequate response to the situation and uh, as as we talk about it mm-hmm. and what um, I guess then what is a more adequate response that we can so have? the way that I would answer that and this is also another way that like I have evolved and am evolving is that like how I will answer this question mm-hmm. is going to be different from other people of right. color and other artists of color and then I think that one thing that, like, everyone needs to really get their arms around is that, like, more than one thing can be true at once. Yeah. And that, like, we need for more than one thing to be true at once. Right. So what I'll say for me and sort of my artistic practice is that I have a bias as a black writer mm-hmm. and that I'm always sort of coming from the bias of a black writer. Yeah. And so for me, casting is always going to be inadequate. Right. Because it is, the casting has, is not about the creative, it's not about a, a writer sort of creating a world that is then inhabited by different bodies. Mm-hmm. And, and I just feel that like, so like, if I were able to go back to 2015 and respond, and I did in some ways, but like I would say this even more explicitly, to respond to Brett Ryback. I would say, like, I don't, like, I, like, yes, white writers should have, um, like, they shouldn't, they don't necessarily need to have an all-white cast, Mm -hmm. but, like, just color, just, like, plopping people of color into narratives that are still essentially white narratives, for me, is not, that's, I'm not interested in that personally. Right. And I think that you need writers of color, and I'm going to say black writers of color because that's my bias. Yeah. Specifically, are to create roles that 
black actors or people of color can inhabit that like we are uniquely suited to creating those parts right um and that more opportunities need to be given that if you give more opportunities to black writers you will automatically give more opportunities to write to actors of color and to black actors of color in particular Mm -hmm. um and so that's how i feel about it but how i feel about it might be different Mm -hmm. than writer black writer b or black actress b c or you know like because the thing that i've also encountered is that there's a lot of performer uh friends of mine of color who just want to be in Hello Dolly, mm-hmm. and they like, you're, like right, for right. them, it's not a priority to play an explicitly black character right. in a musical. They just want they and can like, be and they Nancy might sing and Oliver, right. and they can be you like know, that's and yeah. that and that may be all that they want to do for their enti- the entirety of their career, mm-hmm. and that is valid. My bias that like hurts, like that drives me insane. Yeah. But like I, I absolutely respect that that is another sort of point of view that's right. part of the sort of the the pie. Right, right. I remember one thing from your from the 2015 essay yeah. that I really liked um, and I'm paraphrasing because I'm short. Sure. I can't I remember read, anything. I haven't read it I haven't since either. then and I, I'm literally recalling this from memory so but like it was yeah. it was like a call to all writers saying like remember that you live in a white supremacist capitalist patriarchy mm-hmm. and your show whatever you're writing should reflect that your characters live in a white supremacist capitalist patriarchy so and i think like i might refine that mm-hmm. more now just to say like that's my perspective yeah and like and especially because like i find that like a lot of white writers are especially as, like, the world gets, like, crazier and crazier and the, mm-hmm. United, the U.S. gets crazier and crazier, that, like, people are trying to, gra- to like, grapple with these issues and yeah. their quote-unquote wokeness and all of that stuff. Right. And so they're trying... They, there's a lot of white writers on there who, like, really want to deal with that. So, like, I would say, like, if you really want to deal with that, then you do need to really deal with that. Right. And part of dealing with that, like, in your life, I think is going to start to manifest in your work. Right. To me, it was kind of like a, just what, you know, you would tell any writer of any it's medium a, writing, like, consider look at, your environment. Given, yeah, like, your, what are your given circumstances? Right. Like, is it, like, what's the weather? Like, what's the, what's the weather, weather today? <laughs> no, and that's, and, and, like, and that's the thing, is that, like, for many black people, the white supremacy and the racism is like the weather. Mm-hmm. It is like the very air that they breathe and they have to like oh it's raining today rain and the rain may be racism Mm -hmm. and they have their little umbrella while they're walking through the racism right and you know and like and they and they sometimes get wet Mm -hmm. you know from the racism but then like you go in in the house and you dry off but it's still raining right (laughs) so like i I would just encourage writers white writers who like really want to deal with that mm-hmm. to deal with it right um it's not but i don't think it's something you can like cast your way around or like mm-hmm. it's not it's not like you can't just like get your eggs in a in a basket or mm-hmm. in a row or your ducks in a row and like 
great, now it's diverse. Right. Like or like, now I'm, I'm going into that space. space. <laughs> right. Like, it's a total, like, it's, you, you kind of have to, I think you have to change your whole mindset to, yeah. like, really do it. Yeah. Well, and so, you know, this topic is usually talked about for uh, all of theater. What specifically, how does this specifically or directly relate to musicals? And is there anything producers and theaters should consider about musicals that they don't consider about plays? So, I mean, I don't know that I would really make a difference between Mm -hmm. musicals and plays for this, but, like, I think it's also hard because producers are the people who have to deal with money. Mm -hmm. If they're, you know, the on that side of it and not just, like, creative producers. But, like, and the money aspect of it, the capitalism... Um, is complicated because capital because I would say I would say that capitalism is a system that does not care about like the souls of black people or Mm -hmm. people of color like it's all it cares about is like supply and demand supply and demand and profit and like for me like, I, I guess, depending on what kind of work the producer wants to make, like, they have to, like, look inside of them. Like, they have to look at, like, how much risk they're wanting to take. So, like, for example, like, I have a musical that's going up um, next year. And the, produ- the producer who is enhancing the project, he's, like, putting money into mm-hmm. the project, even though it's being produced by a theater. Right. Um she was drawn to it not because she thought it was going to like make a profit but because she actually just believes that it's a piece that needs to be seen and known so like she's taking she's taking a risk at doing that and like and i think that maybe we need more producers like i would like to see more producers do that i mean they can't always do that but he's also doing that with a non-profit he's not producing it on broadway right there may be if i'm if like all the gods of fortune shown shown upon me, mm-hmm. the show could do really well off Broadway, and there could be producers who want to come in and help put it on Broadway. Right. But if they're doing that, that's because like they either want to think they can make a profit off of it, or and as is the case with some producers, some producers produce things on Broadway knowing they won't make a profit. Mm-hmm. So like it's just I think it just depends on what the goals are. So I know that you um, are not in favor of revivals generally. So what is your... I wouldn't totally characterize it that way, but, okay, go, but so, ask the question. Yeah. Um, uh, so what are kind of your reasons? I guess we'll start with that. What are your reasons or how am I... How is, is that not cover so, so what you... So how I would characterize it is that I think that revivals by... I think revivals de facto discriminate against writers of color Mm -hmm. because they are all, for the most part, written by white writers. Right. And and these are white writers who have not, for the most part, had to have any consciousness about um, POC life Mm -hmm. in any way, um, with certain exceptions. Yeah. And... So I just am not comfortable with an entire sort of theatrical tradition that 
does that mm-hmm. and that and does that without being questioned and then the and and the only way that it's responded to is by changing the casting right right um even if that means people of color have to sort of just blend, blend into a story that is some, like into some sort of white narrative cuz i don't i actually don't think that like just casting a character putting a black actor or Latinx actor or whatever in a part automatically brings the issues of blackness or or Latin issues or whatever into the narrative. Like, I actually don't think that. I think it actually confuses the issue in a lot of Mm -hmm. places. But that it looks good. But it looks good. And the optics, like it it looks really great that someone got to sing and it sounds great if someone got to sing that song or play that part or whatever but I but but it doesn't it doesn't and it also doesn't provide opportunities beyond that Mm -hmm. for those performers to do original works that are written even by other white writers really yeah very often let alone new writers of color who might provide opportunities Right. For them to stretch within an explicitly non-white narrative. Right. Yeah, that's that's in just basically my problem with revivals is that they're just sucking time, money, everything away from new new work. And like a lot of people I know will, you know, go to the theater not a lot, you know, they'll like come up once every year or two years and they have X amount of dollars to spend and it'll end up going toward a revival instead of new work because it's like, oh, if that's familiar or, you know, I I love that show. I want to see it. And it's also not like it's and it it also feels like it's the same twenty shows, Mm -hmm. you know, that get revived. It's not like it's not like we're doing a great revival of No No Nanette anytime soon. I mean that might things like that might pop up at Encores, but like It's going to be like these... And then, like... And so, like, I just sort of wonder, as time goes by and time goes by and times go by, will uh, Dear Evan Hansen get revived in 50 years? Mm-hmm. You, you're in the, like, right. what, like, what will be the new revivals? Because right. everything that's being written now is just... Mm-hmm. It's so of its time. Right. And I'm not, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Right. So then, like, we're reviving these other musicals that have been deemed classics right and what makes them classics it's not i don't know that it's necessarily the shows themselves it's a whole culture right. around it that makes them classics right the whole rogers and hammerstein it, like canon, we like those people are, and those people yeah. and like i think the economic systems have immortalized a lot of those people have mm-hmm. immortalized sondheim have immortalized mm-hmm. rogers and hammerstein these revivals are a choice yeah it's not they're not like these pieces are so classic and flawless and whatever because like then when you go back and look at them you're like oh this actually some of these stories don't make sense it's not that different from like opera right like when you go and look at like something like uh Turindo, mm-hmm. i i was in Turin Turindo. i've never been clear if it's Turindo or Turindo. i know i get so confused i, th- I think <laughs> it might be Turindo, but yeah i think so but... like i was in Turandot as a chorus child yeah. when I was in middle school. Mm-hmm. And so I just saw it through the eyes of a 10-year-old. Right. And then I went, 
as an adult, I went to go see it at the Met a couple of years ago. Yeah. And I sat there and I was like, this doesn't make any sense. Right. But no one cares because they just like the sound of these arias. Right. And like, and so for that alone, just they'll spend millions of dollars just to do this yeah. nonsensical musical year after year after year after year after year. And I think that like a lot of these revivals are the same way that yeah. like they they're they might like you can maybe find something in them by doing them again right. sometimes. And like now, like with My Fair Lady, there now we thought in the Me Too era, oh, we've yeah. solved. I'd say that very ironically in the right. me too era yeah. we've now fixed my fair lady and i'm just right. kind of like but have we right i haven't seen it yet I've i mean i haven't, I haven't seen it either it next month, but i'm just but like the, yeah. the the consensus i've the, seen around it in yeah, the, the reviews conversation. yeah it's just it's just funny to me that it's like so so then let's say that that's true that they fixed it for the me too era will that does that mean then that the next revival of it in i don't know when we're in the backlash, um, or it goes back to <laughs> right, or like, or say like they do it, yeah, like they do like Bart Share has done My Fair Lady, made it you know misogyny proof in 2018. Right. In 2038, will they revive it again as the misogyny free proof? Mm-hmm. My Fair Lady, or will some new director not make the same choice? Like it just, and, and then when you really start to break that stuff down, you're yeah. like. Oh, this it actually doesn't make any sense. Right. Like because at the end of the day, like these are like musicals that were of their time. Right. It was written in the 50s when, you know, we were in a pretty bad time for women. <laughs> and you can like change this not up and make it more what George Bernard Shaw wanted or whatever. Right. But like it's not but it's still but again, the choice to do it is a choice. Right. It's not because the piece itself like like resists the age, the 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 sands of time, you mm-hmm. know, and doesn't age. Right. So, um, yeah, I mean, I I generally agree with you, but then I have these mixed feelings where it's like, oh, like it's so great to have like young people see these shows, and then they can see like where the musicals have come from. But maybe that's just musicals not being revived on Broadway. Maybe young people need to see. Like high, you know, there's a place for them in in high schools and community theaters and. I mean, and, that, and there are like these, yeah. sh- like that's the other thing about it is that like, I just going back to my point about these shows being essentially like they put money in the estates of white writers. Yeah. Which, you know, fine. Like I want to have an estate one day that like, does great things. But right. like, but it's, but it's like these. Sh- it's not like there's no opportunity to see my therapy. Like, these shows are licensed internationally. So, like, you can... And also, you can go to Lincoln Center and you can watch productions of it. You can read it. Mm-hmm. It was made into a movie. Like, there's so many ways right. to be exposed to all of the quote-unquote classic musicals. Like, they're not going to be lost to the sands of time, right. particularly because, again, the choice was made to immortalize them. Right. Um, and so, like, but, like, the question is, like, do we need to do them on Broadway? Right. Like, if we do them on, because, and maybe we do, because Broadway is a, at a certain scale, and people want to see things at that scale. Right. But I, and, but I just feel like, some, like, I, I think for me, is, I would have less of an issue with 
revivals happening if I felt like new musical theater writers were um, that those voices were expanding at the same rate. Whether the revival's good or bad, it's going to be back. Whereas new works, it's like it's like such a wild, wild west. And again, very few, if any of these new musicals are going to ever be in the revival canon. Right. Where like you do it again and again. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like there's, right. it's like, and maybe there are just two different ecosystems, yeah. but like, it just strikes me that like, I've seen Follies like four times. Right. But like, I saw The Adding Machine, which was one of my favorite musicals. It was one of my favorite musicals I've ever seen. And like, I don't think I will ever get to see it again. Ever. I mean, at least they recorded it. At least they recorded it. So like, I had the recording. But like, and and that's just really funny to me. And like, and to me, Adding Machine is actually the kind of musical that does stand the test of time because of what it's about. Right. Um... In, a, in the same way that, like, um, Our Town is, mm-hmm. like, a music, a, a play that kind of is like that. Right. Um, it, but, yeah, and and so I'm kind of like, well, how interesting. Why do I see Follies four times, but I can only got that one shot at seeing Adding Machine? Right. And maybe, like, that one's, and I'm sure that one's licensed, too, and maybe some obscure place yeah. is doing it. But, like, I just think there's, it's like there's, like I just think about it all the time. Yeah. Like, are is it just are like our revivals just literally be like the opera? We're like a hundred years from now. I mean, assuming we're all here, like mm-hmm. two hundred years from now, we'll just see yeah. follies, and then like, will follies make sense to us in a hundred years? Right. It will literally be like so far away from right the whole idea it, what, of, of it, follies. follies. Yeah, <laughs> it will be so far away from like anyone. Yeah. So then maybe follies not even a good example. Like Sweeney Todd, but even yeah. that will be about the Industrial Revolution. Right. And then, okay, so then what about Sunday in the Park with George? I mean, the argument maybe could be made there that George Surratt paintings, at least people yeah. will still be able to go see a painting, because that'll be an old painting. But yeah. So maybe Sunday in the Park with George will survive right. another hundred years. You, do you know yeah. what I mean? And I just start to look at all of them that way. Right. Yeah, and I, I'm thinking of like, like once on this island is a, a newer yeah. show it's that a newer, is yeah. like enjoying like and it hasn't a successful been, and it hadn't been revived in a right. long time. So yeah, that's like the only one I can right. think of, except for like things like Les Mis and Miss Saigon, mm-hmm. which they just you know Les Mis kept coming back. We're entering into like a '90s nostalgia phase. I think it's also like when the people who like grew up in the '90s mm-hmm. become in a more of a or grew up in a certain decade then become in a position to kind of be the ones in charge of making decisions like what are they yeah, like what's their nostalgia mm. like what what do they want to bring back so let's move on to this why is this so good section which uh we're going to do the song not anymore from the musical raisin mm-hmm. uh which uh, we both saw last year at, at the aforementioned Astoria Performing Arts Center production. But let's, I guess, start with why, do, why you picked the song for Why Is This So Good? So I picked it partly because it was a song that I encountered when I was like 14 or 15 years old mm-hmm. when I saw a production of Raisin in Detroit growing up. And I was so taken by the show as a whole. Yeah. Um, and I thought the orchestrations, I still think the orchestrations to this day are like so killer yeah um and that particular song 
and I loved so many of them for, so, for so many different reasons, but I just thought it was such a clever, the lyric is so clever, and the the tone of the song is so spot on. Yeah. And I just remember as a kid, I used to put that song on in my basement, and I would <laughs> put it on repeat. Yeah. And I would, like, dance around in my basement singing it over and over and over again right. because I was just so, I couldn't believe that there was such a smart song in a musical about covert racism, which was, as I was coming of age, like, was becoming more aware of yeah. that just in my own life. Right. And I just thought it was so cool that, like, there was a song from, like, you know, 25 years, 20 or so years earlier that just nailed it and was like very sharp and like cuts through and like twists the knife right. and like it's like and I feel like I learned a sense of irony in musical theater even though I wasn't a musical theater writer at that time right. I think that like it planted a seed of like how to put irony yeah. in a song mm-hmm. to like make your point right. and that song is just like filled with it yeah. um, I think it's brilliant you want to describe uh, the song of Oh, it? yeah. So, um, Not Anymore is a song that's from Raisin, which is a musical adaptation of the Lorraine Hansberry play Raisin in the Sun. And it pretty much follows the plot of Raisin in the Sun exactly. And Not Anymore is the point in the play where um, Carl Linder, who yeah. is a member of the Clybourne Park Welcoming well, committee? well, this it's, I think they have another name, association. A, so, something association, yeah. but like they they call them the welcoming committee, right, right. And they come to um, the youngers' house, wanting to pay them not to move into Clybourne Park into their neighborhood. And this song is uh, a moment when Mama Younger comes back home, mm-hmm. and Walter Lee, Benita, and Ruth are describing what the experience with uh, Mr. Linder was like and sort of their their mocking point of view of what he was, of his sort of liberal, white, racist way of telling them that, like, they would pay anything to keep the, this black family out of this, right. like, well-to-do white neighborhood. And uh, they, they, they basically recap the, the meeting they the the meeting they had with him, which we hadn't seen on stage, we just saw him arriving right. um, and handing them his card, and they just sort of recap the whole thing, and just they have like a really sharp satirical um, description of how the the call went and what his point of view yeah. was. Yeah, it's such a great idea for a song, and I love how like the music is just very like. Upbeat. Yeah, it's like the music is very um, is a uh, is very um, comment on the lyric in a really fun way. Not anymore, not anymore. No, we don't do that anymore. We are so polite. We never ride at night. No, we don't do that. Not anymore. It has a very um, peppy kind mm-hmm. of um, uh, underbelly to it that, like, is that's that's telling you that, like, 
there's a sense of irony about what they're saying and that the that the younger family is actually it's telling you that the younger family is so angry about what happened that they are sort of being super ironic making they're 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 um they are embodying the white voice condescending to them and um and in doing that it implicates the audience like it it shows the audience sort of what the whiteness the white racism actually is because it just says it says things that are super offensive but in a very quote-unquote pc way for the time it's kind of like the inverse of like everyone's a little bit racist. Exactly. Like it it's exactly the From inverse Avenue of that. Q. Yeah. yeah, so Avenue Q says everybody's a little bit racist. And this sort of takes that point of view, but it like it perfumes it up. Mm-hmm. Um, which is really cool. Yeah. Yeah, and it's and it comes in I feel like it's and it's the only song in the show. And it's a very explicitly comic is, number. Yeah. And I think it's yeah, I think it might be the only song that's like that. Yeah. I mean, there are other songs that have, like, humor in them, but this right. one is, like, a straight-up comedy number, yeah. like, from beginning to end. Yeah, and but about a topic that that's is not funny fun. at all. That's right. <laughs> so it's really cool. Yeah, I'm um, trying to remember some of the, Like, they go through, like, a lot of examples. I think they even mentioned, like, a rope at one point. It starts off, let's talk about brotherhood. This is... Walter Lee is imitating Mr. Linder. He goes, Let's talk about brotherhood. Cause brother, we're misunderstood. Bigotry cuts me right to the core. It's a time for hope. We didn't bring no rope. No, we don't do that, not anymore. Bigotry cuts me right to the core. Yeah. Which is all, all is sort of in that kind of um almost like Al Josen mm. kind of yes. song and dance yes. style. In the beginning, mm-hmm. and um, and then they start singing the choruses. No, we don't do that. Not anymore. Not anymore. So it's kind of almost like a cakewalk, mm-hmm. kind of mm-hmm. um, very like a, a like a. It even has like a little bit of a gospel kind yeah. of feel to it. But it's singing about how, but they're saying that we used to being very overt about our racism right. but now we hide it because we're so because we because we don't believe in that kind of thing but right. even though we don't believe in that kind of thing we'll do anything to keep you out right. and it just it really indicts um liberal white racism in such a smart and like just insidious way it shows how insidious it is with all of the irony that's in it it's like it's like one of the I think Sondheim is like a really good, really good at using irony in his music. But mm-hmm. this is almost like, like a ma- it's like a masterclass in how to like use irony to like make a point. We live on a friendly street. Everyone knows who they'll meet. Everyday folks behind every door. We're prepared. 
keep it all that way. Never hear a shout. Hey, yeah. You wanna burn them out? Hey, yeah. No, we don't do that. No, we don't do that. No, we don't do that. Not anymore. Well, let's um, just go on to our last section, which is just. Something wonderful for, <laughs> uh, in reference to Rodgers and Hammerstein's song. But um, so, yeah, we'll just end with talking about things in musical theater we're excited about. It could be a production coming up. It could be, it doesn't even have to be a show coming up. It could be, you know, there's this cool new musical theater book, you know, or something like anything we want to, you know, give a shout out to. Um, I would just give a shout out to new musical theater writers. Mm -hmm. I think that like there's an exciting crop of um, new writers that are coming up and a lot of them are peers of mine and like yeah. and I also think that like producers are starting to really take note of yeah. these new writers and like we're seeing like even though like you know none of us are like on Broadway per se though some are getting close um there's i think there's actually a lot more opportunities being had to make new work um than there used to be say even five years ago mm -hmm. and that's really exciting and they're writers who are not just they're not all white writers and they're not all white stories like there's people who are like and they're not all men yeah. um and they're not all cis people um there's like a lot of different folks that are coming up and like being recognized and I just think that that's really that's really heartening I never would have thought that we would be it's funny like as sort of bleak as the world is today like I thought like five years ago I would never would have imagined yeah. the world seemed less bleak to me five years ago but musical theater seems bleak <laughs> now the world seems bleak and musical theater seems exciting Thank you all for listening to this episode of Scene to Song. Please rate this podcast on iTunes and share it with your friends. The theme music you are hearing is by Julia Meinwald. And check back here in two weeks for our next episode.